Welcome to the Always Already podcast, After Dark Edition. After Dark this Morning is... Edition. <laughs> After Dark Morning Edition, yes. This is a special, special episode. I feel like we need some special, like, special bulletin music playing behind me um, right now. I can work on that. Uh, da, 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 there you go, right? You're going to work on it. Okay. This is one of your hosts, James, and I'm joined by... Emily. Sid. And John. This is a, the debates were after dark though. That's true. So yes, technically were. they were. Yes, too so this too boring. Also, this I think is a special a lot. episode. We should tell our viewers, our listeners, <laughs> that uh, it's a special episode to discuss the two-part um, Democratic presidential debates um, that did take place after dark. Although we are not recording after dark. Four hours of debates. 20 people <laughs> of debates. 21 if you count Chuck Todd. He did think he was as important as the rest of the <laughs> he, 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 he messed up the curve for words spoken. Since he, yes. What do you call the it? Man, busted the curve. I don't know. The I man spoke on the more curve, words. So. <laughs> uh. I was just going to say that I drank uh, an really insane amount of coffee this morning to approximate the kind of craze of nighttime, you know? So Uh, (laughs) I, because I'm I'm now old, I had to like drink a coffee at seven o'clock PM last night to make it through the debates. And then I couldn't go to sleep. Like I said, I'm I'm (laughs) washed. I'm just washed. This is a very academic thing to say, I guess, but um, I was building a bookcase this morning um, before <laughs> the getting all only if it, only if it was IKEA, that is the only way it's academic. James, you know I'm what? I'm almost next thinking. week on Tuesday. I have plans uh, to build an IKEA bookcase on Tuesday. <laughs> you know what? This is actually I'm gonna say where I got it from because I'm gonna put myself out here and we'll like let it potentially apply to what we're gonna talk about on this episode or not. Ooh. But I ordered this bookshelf from Wayfair. And then I found well, out, like, literally a day later that Wayfair employees staged a walkout this week yeah. um, in protest over their company um, doing business with the um, ICE and, like, providing beds for detention centers. Wow. And when employees found out $200,000, I believe, was the amount of money, they wanted Wayfair to donate the money to Raices, the, one of, you know, an organization that does work um, for migrants. And when Wayfair refused to do that, Wayfair employees staged a walkout. And that was like 24 hours after I made my first Wayfair order ever. Serendipitous. So I feel caught up in the system of capitalism, even when I don't want to. And this is the segue. Yes. 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 No, thank you, John. You're getting the long loop around, the long loop around. As to how we are like corralled and marshaled into participating, even when philosophically we may not want to. Hell yeah, that's perfect. 
So with James' incredible segue, uh, <laughs> Emily Crindle, why should we even care about or talk about these debates at all? Oh, God, I'm not the right person to ask because <laughs> part of me is like, don't. <laughs> well, um, no, that, makes, that makes us all the right people to ask. Right. Um, I, I mean, I think part of the allure of this go-around is the same thing that people get out of watching The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, right? It's like... Yeah. <laughs> Um, this, this like super narrow kind of, um, contrived format that is somehow supposed to delineate and differentiate 18 different people according to some metrics that we've all like (laughs) agreed on without agreeing on ahead of time. And we're supposed to learn something about them in this way. And (laughs) that we know that we're not going to, but we watch anyway and we pass judgment anyway. I don't know. <laughs> this is great. Um, I love that you're kind of starting off with a Frankfurt School level analysis of like. Well, it was missing from the debates, that's for sure. The, yeah, no, like this, like meta level, the entertainment of it, the like the stage setup and the way it oh, yeah. is, the two night aspect, the liveness of it, like well, also it, one, the different camera two. views. You know, the like yeah, cutaway you know angles I mean? and the the looks, right? That's like the B cam. Uh, tracking reaction shots, like how many of those did they record on the soundstage ahead of time? You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> oh, this is actually just to put this out there. It's a good thing to pay attention to because, like, in the long history of presidential elections, right? It's the 1960 debates where that were televised for the first time, in which Richard Nixon, looking very old and untelevision, wait, apparently this ready. is a myth. This is, is that like a myth? myth? Yeah, this is like a, this is like an apocryphal thing. I love apparently. it. Apparently. Well, no, I, that's probably true. It's one of these myths of American uh, presidential All presidential histories probably <laughs> are mythologies, really, when they boil down, right? Um, but there is a pomp and circumstance of just the electoral process itself that is hitting into a, like, a chemical reaction in the brain, a libido. Like, when the microphone situation on Thursday night started messing up. Like that was the most exciting part to me because it was like the liveness of it again came back. Like I was watching live TV and there is something exciting about like anything could go wrong. Um, right. So, okay. That's one piece of it. Did, did we want to talk Did Sid, do you want to um, get to the, like, okay. What so would Frank Wilderson say? Before we do, I want to point out that purportedly, several of us are political scientists. Purportedly. <laughs> yeah. Political theorists. <laughs> Different. But not I. Not I. I'm in a religion department. So purportedly, it's some of the three of you, maybe. <laughs> so philosophically, I'm with abolish presidents. That's my hashtag. <laughs> uh, and I think a lot of us would agree with that. But I think, I mean, that's what Frank Wilderson would I assume that's what he would say, right? Um, he's, he's just against the whole thing, burn it down. So that's, that's something that we should definitely take into account. But at the same time, I like to think about this um, in the sense of a non-reformist reform, even though it's not a non-reformist reform, but we can make a difference in actual people's lives in the here and now. So I guess that's why I'm kind of interested in it. What I like about the discourse so far in these debates has been that everyone's sort of trying to sell themselves as being more progressive, at least in comparison to 2016. It's kind of refreshing to see that what Bernie was saying in 2016 and what was seen as a a complete outlier 
or apparently super radical, now that's gotten more traction and people are realizing that the center is not a viable position to hold in these debates. So I don't are know what y'all are realizing that which people are realizing that and which people are not realizing that. Right. So the Bidens are not realizing that and they're still catering to I'm not Trump and I'm associated with Obama. Oh, that was my. They're reason. still playing defense. Right. Whereas that people like Is I it think too early Warren, for sports metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> Warren, Is it ever the right time for sports metaphors? I don't know. I've been socialized very well, so. <laughs> we are talking about American sports after all. I mean, <laughs> politics. Freud. So. Yes, <laughs> little Freudian there. A little Freudian. I, I I didn't know whether it was intentional or accidental, but either way. Wait, Sid, good. can I ask you a question? On the yeah, yeah. on the point of abolish presidents, do, what do you think? What do you make of Bernie's like rejection of the question? What's the first issue for your presidency? And throwing down political revolution. Do you think he's like, oh, that 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 involves kind of reimagining the office? I don't. I don't think so. So I think one thing. I think Warren and Sanders are much closer, um, and I think Bernie has this of like political revolution and all of that. But at the end of the day, I just see him as a Keynesian, as a social democrat, mm-hmm. uh, like European style social democrat. So I don't, I don't, I don't think he's—he's he's definitely not a radical in the sense that we would, whatever, theoretically think of what radicalism is. But I think within the little sport of American electoral politics, um, I think he's done a lot to push the discourse um, and to just push people's thinking. Um, with like Medicare for all, minimum wage, just bringing issues of the economy front and center. But yeah, I don't know. Can I, I hope jump I'm in? Boss as a Bernie bro, but out of everyone, I really like Bernie. <laughs> I want. Can I? I just want to like try to like maybe like plug these two ideas together so far that we've been saying about the kind of like the. The television cinematic the aspect spectacle. frame, the, the spectacle, spectacle, right? I accidentally, we were referring to it as a sports thing, but it does feel like there's a sports season with like, totally. it's almost like a, like the final, you know, like final four, like, you know, we're starting off with like 20 and then it's going to whittle its way down. Like there is a March madness aspect to it or whatever in, in one regard. And so like, then the other piece of this that Sid was talking about as like the, you know, letting these, I, these ideas are shifting discourse or the discourse is shifting the space of ideas uh, um, in our kind of sociocultural, political uh, ecosystem. And I think that like, there's something in that, like going back to the original question of why do we pay attention to this or why should we, or like, why shouldn't we or anything like that? Like, should you actually participate in electoral politics is that the same thing as like watching the debates? Is that a participation in electoral politics or is that some participation in some other ritual, right? Cultural ritual. But I think like just as a matter of historical circumstance or like, you know, the, the, the almost accidentalness of history that the American presidency as it came into formation throughout the 20th century and the American empire congealed in its 20th century kind of post-World War II formation that these types of presidential debate discussions become like preeminent sound boards or like stages 
for political philosophical discussion in the United States. Like not because there's something intrinsic about the presidency or something about our, you know, our democratic in scare quotes, liberal system that like makes electoralism something interesting relative to everything else. But just like in 2019, if you want to get enough people to think about a new political idea, like in the way that Bernie ran in 2016, I think originally not at all thinking he was going to like electorally do anything, but he was just going to be using the bully pulpit of a campaign to build a grassroots network, which is still what he seems to be implying that he's doing or not even implying. I mean, like he's organizing, you know, labor movements and was using his email list to warn undocumented people about ice raids. And so like, he's got an idea about building a grassroots movement that is taking advantage of the infrastructure of an American political campaign apparatus. But I don't think that that's the end. It's just like, that is such a, it's a big mechanism. So why the hell not use it? Right. Wait, so so you're saying that even if they're, sound bites that the sound bites matter because they eventually sort of play into the substantive stuff at both the grassroots level and at the institutional level. I, uh, so I think in the case of Bernie as a, like having a grassroots level to this at all is like, that's his particular strategy. I don't know if that's always going to be the way it would always work out in like every debate is going to have this potential to filter right. down to the grassroots. I don't think so. But in this particular case, there is this like there's a grassroots networking that has been taking place and that is taking place and that is like articulating with the electoral calendar, but is not necessarily directly linked to it. And like but there is something to be said about the potential of all political like presidential campaigns in the United States to do that kind of grassroots work only insofar as like a matter of historical circumstance. It seems to be that Americans only seem like pay attention to this shit every four years. And so I have a better chance maybe of making a pitch. Uh, And I'm going to just say that like, not to get into a lot of deep details about stuff that I did prior to like my podcast lives and like political activism that I did back in the day, but as an undergrad work and working for nonprofit political like student organizing campaigns in DC and like drug policy reform stuff. We would have bump years in presidential campaign years. And it's like, we're talking about legalizing marijuana, which is like a philosophical conversation, but like we get 25% or 30%, whatever it is that much more traction during a presidential campaign year relative to other years. And it's like, why is that? Just because people just seem to pay attention more in that time. To, to build on that, I mean, there's also, and James, you were kind of, I think, gesturing at this before we started recording, but I think that what all of you have said speaks to this as well, is that the debates are also, uh, to, to use what we were joking about earlier, like a diagnostic mm-hmm. uh, to like find out okay. what is the, the quote-unquote center or like center liberal, mm-hmm. uh, like political mechanism 
dynamics, symptoms, like root deep fundamental like schisms or not so deep schisms that are that are ongoing, right? So like it's a diagnostic on what is the status and what are the dynamics of debates about identity politics and which is something we'll talk about. What are the like dynamics of all of these to use Emily's word like that we'll also talk about this today, um, like empty signifiers um, of the terminology that's being used. It's like a diagnostic on like how is the how are liberals in the uh, prominent liberal politicians in the U.S. talking about race and what are like the broader dynamics right. behind that? So like as a diagnostic or as a way to get into those sorts of things, I think it's potentially useful in that way. I have a question for you guys. Do you think that this more than past debates, and I'm just genuinely curious because I'm not really remembering, but that they seem to be, is it always the case that in the democratic debates that they're sort of sussing out or diagnosing their position vis-a-vis each other and the party rather than sort of talking about themselves against Republicans. I feel it. Does that make sense as a question? Yes. I don't know if that's always the case or if it was more so or less so like that. I mean, that's a function of there being 20 people, right? And Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, whether you are a quote-unquote front-runner or whether you're John fucking Delaney, uh, like, you're trying to differentiate yourself. That's the only way to, like, to go back to the sports metaphor, to, like, move on to the next round, is to, like, differentiate differentiate yourself enough to, like, have a niche. You know, I think just, like, for the Democrat Party, the Democratic Party itself, too, like, the the legacy of the last reigning champion, like to keep these sports metaphors going, (laughs) that legacy died off, right? Hillary dropped the baton for however that worked (laughs) out. And so like, there is no, like Biden is barely running on that. Like even for, let me, we just get into this real quick here. And I don't know if you want to get into Biden right, right now, but like, you know, like Biden is not, if anyone was going to like continue that kind of trajectory where it would just be like Democrats are arguing vis-a-vis their position, you know, like they're different from Republicans in that like there would be a co- a kind of coherent Democratic legacy that we're saying like like at least Obama was like looking back to Clinton. Right. And like there was that mm-hmm. kind of connection, that feeling. And then bringing Hillary into the administration gave you continuity. And so like there is none of that. I think there's like something more ideological going on in the Democratic Party now yeah. that you're seeing that manifest in the debates and that there are like, you know, 20 candidates right. or so. I think and more so people who didn't even make it into the debates. Right. Like I think that is a another manifestation of the ideological unmooring, we'll say, of whatever was keeping the party sort of stable. And in some way, I think the Democrats as a party are kind of in a like postmodern, post-structuralist formation, right? And that like the, 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 the things that kept the Democrat party as a like stable, um, constituency (laughs) you know like throughout the 20th century like the labor movement stuff and like maybe the you know fdr's legacy like there was a coherence that was like a sort of stabilizing center we'll say and then when that party becomes neoliberal but still like has the facade of being a working class everyday man's party like they so like who knows what the democratic party has actually been 
for the last 30, 40 years, right? Now or we're starting to see back. that. Mm-hmm. Or even further, I mean, it's not even necessarily that stable. Like if we're talking about FDR, right? The New Deal requires votes like buying off Southern conservative Democrats right. by excluding black workers from something right. like Social Security. And yes. at the same time, like Democratic legislation requiring, quote unquote, liberal Republicans, like until the parties become more ideologically sorted to be very political scientist. About Honestly, it, right. Too, so like I, so like there's so any any stability is itself mythic and requires the, um, like, empty. Signifiers. You know what? Honestly, just bar- real quick of bargaining. <laughs> yes. This is not a conversation about. About like critical race per se, but like the <laughs> whole why narrative, not? why not? That whole narrative is really a story of like white supremacist masculinist politics having to like democratize over time. And like by the time the final push in the 1960s comes, where like everyone ostensibly now is enfranchised, like now the facade of stability is like rocked to the core. And yes, for the last 50 years, we've had disenfranchisement going right back again. But that's the point, I think. And we're reached this point now in 2019 where like everyone on paper, all the constituencies, like there's nothing left in the project of American political liberty. Like, you know, like that narrative is spent. And so the jig is up. You could keep that thing going forever where like 30, 40, 50 percent of the actual people were like so subaltern that they had no way to lodge their complaint. But I think now everyone assumes that they're part of the political body politic in some on some level. And so, like, we're all here trying to vote. Right. And like that just I think in raw numbers, it just makes this dynamic like the Democratic Party. If it was a constituency that held itself together through invisible white supremacy, can't do that in as. the same way. Yeah, it's it's just like it's impossible because there are too many brown black people out here who are literally on the ground now with like cameras and shit saying like, wait, yeah, we're here. Right. I, I think that's just but that's not what we're here to talk about. Also, right? look at what you did. <laughs> right. Right. Under the auspices right. of and, of yeah. granting, you know, rights and yeah. humanity or whatever. Right. And I, th- I think here's a here's an interesting place, like just going off where you were saying, James and John and. Emily, that like an analysis of racial capitalism, right, about the way the Democrats, it wasn't just white supremacy, like it was a white, it, it, it is still a white supremacist party, but the way it used race and class to its advantage, right? So it gives this veneer of full progressivism that, okay, we have uh, black and brown people in like professional managerial positions, but the vast working class, which is disproportionately POC, um, we don't care about those people. There's, you know, like there's a very specific class of black and brown people that the Democratic Party um, was aligned with. And I think that gig is slowly being unraveled, right? That the vast majority of POC, <laughs> working class POCs are realizing or have re- or realized a long time ago, this isn't like some false consciousness thing. Like they knew that out of the Republicans and the Democrats, maybe the Democrats were the better choice. But I don't think anyone was under any illusion, right, that these people are going to bring Medicare for all, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, so I think, like, really holding on to the reconfigurations of race and class, particularly after the Trump election and how Trump really broke the American political system. 
he definitely broke the Republican Party, but he also broke like American politics, I think, as a subfield, especially like the quantitative <laughs> analysis. <laughs> No, like, I'm I sorry, love, I'm sorry. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I love this analysis, like, though. About that. I'm, I'm living for this. But but I think he really, like, I think 50 years down the line, like, uh, data, data analysts are still going to try to be working around, like, what variables did we get wrong? Were the questions on our surveys wrong? You know, like, that, that there has to be some reckoning with... Um, what the Trump presidency actually stands for. And I think the reconfigurations of race, class, gender, um, and nationalism, nationalism as a lens, um, to understand these different modalities of domination um, well, really need to be talked about. Yeah. And also, like, as a sort of nod or joke uh, to Warren's gun control answer about needing more research, like, the, it's a question about, like, where what 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 are our tools failing to right. do for us? our tools of analysis failing to tell us right? right what are what are they missing and what what are the ways we we need to sort of reimagine how we even engage in political analysis at all yeah I think it, it, that's, it's a deeply epistemological political issue right yeah. about like how do we how do we understand how do we know how do we know politics or whatever try to grapple with actual political change. I think uh, that question is not like whether that's like a meta level discussion that we're having right now. I again that the these debates are diagnostic for helping us read that. I think they themselves like the debates themselves are reckoning with that very thing in that this is the like this is the post truth age officially. Now if we're going to play this history game, history ended with Obama Right. And we're in the post everything now. Right. Like and like right. for the listeners, go back to those Trump episodes we did about two years ago, <laughs> whatever, like where we yeah. discussed this. We're in the post of everything. And like post truthness, I think, is the one that we can feel the most because the fake news shit is like I'm so tired of being lied literally to my face every day by those people. Right. And so, like, how do you imagine politics in this post, post, post everything? And I think. That like part of that reckoning and you see Bernie and Warren are kind of riding right. a wave in the geist of like the post-capitalist question is a real question being Absolutely. driven by material co conditions. And that because they were already driving conditions, they're driving Trump, too. Right. Trump is also riding the, the frothy waves of this post-capitalist, or even if we want to say capitalism is going through a period of reformation as it's looking right. for new, new primitive, uh, you know, sites of accumulation. Like, right. so what's old is new again, all over again. But I do think there's something very distinct about the now of like, if the United States as a political formation is going to have a 21st century, it has to reimagine itself in some way that becomes practicable, you know, like practicable on the ground for 350 million or so people. Right. I'd like to point out that wave that, that is geist, not sorry. That wave in the geist is, that's, is, yes. is the AAP surf rock band name Here's and my, or the episode <laughs> title. But wave, wave in the geist, geist is my, my That is 100% the title of our surf rock band. Happened. That's great. Let me just, I want to just be clear, like to clarify this though, that like this, this question is a question for the 21st century American project, because for the first time 
in any of these centuries of the American project, this is the one that we're going to all at least pay lip service to the idea that we're all supposed to be fully enfranchised citizens. Can I say, though? So we have a chance to do this all over again (laughs) if we let it. We as we the people, right? If there is a nationalist American project at all, like if we're citizens, is there a we the people that can speak in the 21st century in any workable real way? Don Roberts at all don't think so. <laughs> Can I say as a maybe a way to segue a bit into the um, empty signifier question or conversation that I do think that capitalism is a bit of a specter in these debates, though. Like, I, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the only person to actually say Gillibrand. capitalism was Gillibrand, and that was a way of kind of trying to preserve capitalism, right? Like she was like, wants to differentiate capitalism from greed and say that it's not intrinsic to cap, like the things that are, that we're sort of pointing out as a, a, like, can we, can you unpackage that more? Can we unpackage this whole, in case people didn't watch these debates, because this Gillibrand (laughs) capitalism thing is like, whoa. Yeah. Well, I don't remember exactly what she said. I think she said, this, oh, I think it was in con- the context of the future of the party, where she was trying to say that, like, whatever is happening in the Democratic Party, whatever disagreement is, that's sort of causing a rift, she said it was confusing. And the reason it's confusing is because people are collapsing capitalism and greed. And she wants to say right. that there's a big difference between capitalism on right. one hand and greed on the other. So, so if I can sort of interpret that, I think maybe what she means is that, or what she's trying to do the logic that motivates that differentiation is that what we're calling as the kind of consequences of capitalism are not intrinsic to the system, but they're a function of the sort of people who are architects of the capitalist, of the capitalist machinery. And so we can, we can use markets, we can do blah, blah, blah. We just have to find a way politically to sort of harness and restrain greed. Um, Which what, where is she, where is she deriving that definition of capitalism from? So one one thing that I want to add, and we should we should definitely talk about this. Warren says pretty much exactly the same thing. Like there are various interviews where she's like, "Yeah, capitalism is good. It's brought us all this wealth. It's just untamed crony capitalism that's the problem." Mm-hmm. And so we need like antitrust legislation and all these laws in place to make sure that greed and Wall Street doesn't take over. Right. Right. I do. There's a difference between corruption, right, which Gillibrand hammers corruption and a kind of structural critique. And I don't know if we like. But I do think Warren Warren thinks that it's not corruption, that it's it's being legitimated and authorized through through institutions themselves. Right. So I I do think she has a bit more of a kind of institutional view of like how greed is fostered and manifested, whereas um, Gillibrand, I think, is uh, her analysis to me seems a bit more superficial. Like she's like right. She has this interpersonal understanding of like a greedy person is like you know Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, right? Versus right. like a good capitalist like George Bailey who like loves the right. people in his neighborhood. And it's like profit motive and greed. Like if you know like if we're right. going to do a structural analysis of capitalism, like greed is built into the system via pro- like and maybe you don't like that leap like greed feels too affective for you but capitalists like ayn rand themselves talk about the virtue of selfishness <laughs> so it doesn't even like gillibrand i don't know where, like that idea if she's trying to spin up some kind of like uh, you know like this idea of the market is she a keynesian leftist or something because yeah. it doesn't even, like if she's trying to save capitalism for the capitalist 
class, the capitalist class will turn around right back at her and say, no, actually, greed is what we say. The most, right. you know, the Wall Street dudes are all running around with Rand books in their back pocket. Well, maybe so I don't get, maybe she's, she's either saying, lying or she's ignorant about, or you maybe, know what I mean? Or she's like deliberately lying about capitalism and greed. But also maybe just more sort of like strategically, she's laying groundwork for a, a future um, sort of engagement with Republicans or something. Well, right. she's presumably, she's like, like, strategically, presumably, she's trying to, like, triangulate against Bernie slash right. Bernie and Warren on the one hand and, like, Biden on the other. Here's the Gillibrand quote from last night. I disagree with both their perspectives and that both is uh, referring to, to socialism and to capitalism, I think. Um, and so then she says, the debate we're having in our party right now is confusing because the truth is there's a big difference between capitalism on the one hand and greed on the other. And so all the things that we're trying to change is when companies care more about profits than they do about people. And then further, a little bit later in the same question exchange, she says, uh, in truth, we want healthy capitalism. We don't want corrupted capitalism. So that's that's the Gillibrand quote. Ooh, and like, healthy and is interesting. Healthy is a fascinating yes. one. That bio po- political, like you know, bio something metaphor is very, as opposed to a corrupted one. Like, does she think? Oh, I don't want to get into the weeds with her like metaphor here, but. Mm-hmm. Capitalism maybe is a cancer on this like healthy, like a healthy capitalism becomes cancerous because the profit motive knows no end. And we've dropped, we've driven ourselves to potentially the brink. You know, if you want to go down the eco apocalyptic line, which is another way maybe to segue back into some of these questions that are coming in here. I think there's something in this like necessary questioning of capitalism. Because on the other end of this, like one specter is not just we're not just open ended in our time imaginary anymore. Right. Like when Bernie's yelling out about the 12 year prediction that comes from the government's own scientists saying that if we don't stop the raise of global temperatures, I think, or hold it to one point three degrees centigrade within 12 years, then there's no scientifically predictable way to know what will happen. Like, that's not saying that it's going to fall apart in 2030. That just means that we have officially entered a new intensified stage of this, that, like, we don't even have enough analog data to make good guesses about, like, patterns. That is an existential threat that, like, I like to think about it as an existential threat for like the like as a religionist and you know the apocalyptic millenarianism of it all but i don't want to pretend that it's all faked and just like that i mean like i also think there's something very material about that which is motivating right because the end of capitalism on one end is like the end of fossil fuels it is the end like all these things start to congeal in a very material way that is like driving the the tension in this democratic debate and like why they won't have a debate that's specifically about the Anthropocene or not. Oh, I mean, climate change like, was one of the emptiest of the empty signifiers. In yeah. That I mean, I, I Emily, Emily I wanted to ask you about yeah. this. Cause like, so various people referred to it as climate chaos. That was Swalwell also climate, climate crisis, crisis right. and climate emergency. Yeah. And like, obviously there's like 
political theory, like a Gombin Schmidt <laughs> things going on in here too. But like, what do you make of that language, either generally or specifically in the context of these debates? I mean, in the context as of somebody these... who has like written in dissertation <laughs> that is like speaking like directly to these things. Ooh, written in the past tense. Weird. Yeah. I don't think I've been on since no. defending and depositing actually. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I think on one hand it's, I mean, it was one of my glaring, the biggest cases of empty signifier for me. I was joking with somebody that everyone, the question of like, what's the biggest problem? Everyone's like, climate change. Next question. As though that is somehow answers it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that, I think chaos in particular is very, a very interesting choice of word because I think it sort, I don't know if this is intentional or if it's just me doing like a way overly, uh, analytic reading of this, but I think it actually plays on some of the worries about the, the economic worries about markets without explicitly kind of counterposing, you know, markets and the environment in that way, right? We think of chaos as something, um, that is like different than a crisis in that it need not have a kind of or originary, a point of origin yeah. or an architect, right? It's in, and which means that like the way to respond to it is sort of less coherent and less clear because it's right. this like sort of like all consuming, but also amorphous entity that like, um, I don't know. It, I'm losing my train of thought here, but it, I think it both sidesteps the analytic question of, of, right. and the question of accountability at the same time as it sort of dramatizes the, um, the need for a response to it. And I don't really understand how people want to make the leap from, um, from the lack of analysis and lack of point of origin or accountability to a response. Do you know what I mean? Right. Totally. Who was it? Kamala Harris that said chaos, I believe. Swalwell. Yeah. Swalwell. Okay. I think mm-hmm. someone, didn't someone else say chaos in night one? I'm looking up right now. Um, so Swalwell said chaos twice, yes, climate chaos twice yesterday. No one used climate chaos on night one. Night one. I, Do you there's think that's something, part of um, his, like, bid at the millennial vote? Like, the millennials are ones who were, who lived in the chaos of, like, the economic crash and blah, blah, blah. Inslee said climate crisis twice. And that was There's it? something interesting in chaos that is actually, like... Maybe it's accidental. Maybe there's something ontological just about like the idea of chaos itself. But chaos as a Greek divinity, right, of like creation and destruction, like entailed in one. There is something interesting about like calling it that because I like for everything that like whatever this is, it is a like unavoidable reshuffling of all kind of social patterns and like ecological systems that have emerged so far on this planet perceived imaginary or real, right? Like it's, it's taken on that kind of a life that I think like chaos as a, as an entity or something, you know, it's like, it is beyond responding to and like calling it chaotic and that it is chaotic in the sense that it might not even, it's not a linear, like, it's not going to look terrible immediately or, you know, like, it's unpredictable. I, I think chaos really does hit the dynamics of a kind of fractal, implicit, like, Karen Barad-esque world. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, it's uh, very, mul- it's very, like, multi I should say. 
Like, cause on the one hand we could take the chaos and go in like the barrage slash assemblage slash genealogy direction, which is actually makes it a potentially generative uh, heuristic. But then there's also the more, the much more likely possibility that Emily lays out that it's a way right. to like pretend there's no like, Oh, well, it's just chaos. Like we don't have anything to explain it. We don't need to indict capitalism or, uh, or the humanism or something like that. But it also lets us like attribute a whole range of things to its, solution right it like at the same time it kind of widens the the playing field for like what counts as a response i'm gonna push that if if climate chaos is everything then like everything is a response to climate chaos so does climate chaos like buttress uh the green new deal claim i i can i just i don't know there's something about that perspective of the world that is like millennial if millennials in any way have been shaped by like growing up on the internet that is this recursive non-linear like space then i think like look we have an experience of a chaotic fractal world in a way that older generations don't and like to just play this game swalwell as the one who's basically right. making his whole campaign around like pass old people torch. just need to get out of the way yes yeah. pass the torch old man <laughs> like uh. You know, like there is something interesting then that like chaos emerges as this, you know, like because chaos within like postmodern, post-structural critical theory, like uh, Benitez Rojo, um, his repeating island. I mean, like that idea is its own like postmodern manifestation within philosophy itself. So it's interesting to see like chaos as a political take up as a millennial project. Has and like, let's get to the Yang Gang now that we're on this millennial <laughs> for a bit, because he has a very, you know, like his his like there's something cybernetic and almost like too techno bro about him too, but like on the same level, right? Like he his approach is not the same. His style, he had no tie on last night, which I appreciate that, that aesthetic. Great. Yes, like that. Yeah. There's yeah. just something not different. Criticism later for yeah. Where do you think he came up with the term freedom dividend? <laughs> or where did that come from? Oh, Lord. Yeah. He was on Dave Rubin's show. We should throw that out for people who know who Dave Rubin is or may not know who Dave Rubin is. Dave Rubin is a very, I would say, not sophisticated thinking, um, right wing, Coke brother funded, like, YouTuber who says he's interested in ideas, but then like has very superficial non-structural analyses of things. But nonetheless, you know, so like Yang Gang, <laughs> Andrew Yang runs around with this like libertarian technocrat like world. So like this but freedom dividend thing. universal basic income basically. But so did F.A. Hayek though. So like this That's idea true. is like the set, right? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, and Milton yeah. Friedman. And that, right. It's a, it's, it's a Chicago school and, idea that like all recognizes did you have to pay off the proletariat a little bit to keep right, the right. right. But 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 it also has a like not Marxist or like Marxist autonomous like trajectory of it too. And like right. go yes. back to our Kathy Weeks episode or the interview with James Chamberlain if you're interested. Right. This is why I do think Andrew Yang's like provocative. Not interesting in that like I would ever support his candidacy, but like another like as another frothy wave on top of the Geist ocean here. He he comes along with like an interesting because he doesn't he doesn't implot perfectly in those like 20th century political genealogies of American politics. All right. 
So I'm, look, I'm no, looking I'm like at his to... website, and he actually calls it universal basic income all over the website. Like oh. there's bare, there's basically oh, okay. zero freedom dividend language on the website. That is fascinating. So that was just purely for the the spectacle. Yes. Hmm. I think he knows how to spin it up to the like libertarian technocrat right wing side, and then could also spin it over to the like leftist ish. You know, right. like yeah. San Francisco Bay kind of techno hippie crowd. Yeah. Was anyone else surprised to see the stats that he spoke by far the least? I felt like he was given, I don't know, like I remembered everything that he said. So I guess maybe that's an indicator that he didn't say that much. But I was very surprised to see that he only spoke for under three minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's surprising. Yeah, and the next... The person who spoke more above him was Swalwell, who spoke for, like, five. Huh. He didn't play the, like, game of, like, stammering to, like, force your way into any conversation. He right, just stood right. there and then, like, only answered. You know, like, he was very, like, he's very techno about it. Like, he's not here to play the, like, right. aesthetics of TV right. politics. He's just like, here's a problem, here's an answer. Like, he's, like, coding for the presidency or something. Right. Coding for the presidency. That's the title of something. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just spinning these off left and right. (laughs) Marianne Williamson. I just want to like, like for a moment here, I just want to like, girlfriend, I want to take love, love. I was like, when she's like, who let Blanche Devereaux (laughs) on stage? Like she had a rum and coke. And, like, I think Rachel said she had a vape pen. No, that was me. I want to, like, play. That That was me. I I, I want whatever she's smoking. That's, like, yeah, wow. But the the one good thing about her, or I don't know if this is a good thing, but one interesting thing was on foreign policy. Remember, we were all texting, and I think she was the only one who brought up um, imperialism or the specter of imperialism. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, she talked about, she talked about like when she, when she was talking about, uh, the concentration camps at the border, uh, something about having to like look to, uh, look to Central American and Latin American countries. Like I forget the exact term she used. Um, Right. But, she also uh, made to see what between... like American politics, you know, what, but what American foreign policy had done. She was right. doing right. some structural analysis between, I think, like the ecological crisis and like healthcare and economics. I forget what she made some connection, or maybe it was like between abortion rights and something else. But she, like in her own way, and then I was like, wait, people don't get what she's saying is actually a little bit profound. Oh, oh she I liked it. I found the quote. <laughs> Should I read it? Yes. She said, and what President Trump has done is not only attack these children, not only demonize these immigrants, he's attacking a basic principle of America's moral core. We open our hearts to the stranger. Or just like some Derrida shit. Yeah. This is extremely important. It's also important for all of us. Remember, and I have great respect for everyone who's on this stage, but we're going to talk about what to do about healthcare. Well, where have you guys, where have you been, guys? Because it's not just a matter of a plan. And I haven't heard anybody on this stage who has talked about American foreign policy in Latin America and how we might have in the last few decades contributed to blah, blah, blah. And then she got cut off. <clears throat> Just to be well, fair, Bernie Sanders has said a lot about the coup in Honduras in the 50s right. and that, like, Lula da Silva, I think, or right, right. 
Am I getting the name right? Like the Brazilian president who's been locked up because of a coup. So Bernie has been dealing with U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, but I get her point. And like she did, she said a couple other things in a very like the drunk auntie sort of at like Thanksgiving way. Like it was, but it was like gentle. I like hearing her talk. I was enjoying it. She's a little (laughs) kooky, but. I appreciate that, she also though, as being, like, a part of, crimes, like, which is interesting. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That piece. About, you know what's, about like... About that, what I read. She said what was that. fascinating to me was just that, like, she somehow managed to make it on stage I in know. the actual Democratic primary. I was just like, who is... Like, what? <laughs> For that alone, the absurdity <laughs> of it all. Yeah. I just loved it. I was like, okay, if, you're gonna, if we're going to throw a little absurdity in, at least she was, like, making structural critiques against American empire in the midst of the absurdity, you know? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. She said, she said separation is kidnapping and child abuse. And when this is a crime, both of these things are a crime. If your government does it, that doesn't make it less of a crime. These are state sponsored crimes. Right. That's amazing. And then remember Biden's answer. He was like, (laughs) what? I'm not, I'm just going to keep them together or not all deportations. I forget what it was. <laughs> not all Biden. Uh, you know, not this all is Bi- <laughs> not all deportations. Biden was finding himself defending the Obama administration's record of deportations last night. Right. Which, but let's just the Juan Vargas, I think, is the no, leader no. from television. Who, or, uh, tele- Jose Diaz Balart. Jose, what's Balart? Diaz Balart. So, like, yes, okay, Jose Diaz Balart. He was bringing the most stinging like great. indictments in his questions both nights yeah, yeah. as a moderator and yeah. he leaned into the like the human pathos and the ang- like the political affect of like being angry around the migrant crisis right. versus the way the american media over the last few weeks with their very bland neutral uh or what's the you know the banality of like is it a concentration camp is it a i know what other kind of stupid Orwellian term you can come up with? Like, what's happening is disgusting. And so I appreciate Ballard for bringing, like, injecting that level into his questions. Um, what was the question that he asked last night, though, that there was – oh, there was something I wanted to bring up here. Because he asked a really structural, interesting question. Someone else About, do you remember what night? the topic was? I know I'm John and I both have the full transcript up. I'm like, <laughs> I'll search for it. I just got, I just went down a rabbit hole reading um, Biden's response on that same question. Also, Mayor Pete did an interesting thing about uh, Christianity vis-a-vis Republicans in that question. Too. Right. I appreciated <laughs> everything about that. That was good. Just like put that on record every time you yeah. can put that on record, please. Like, I'm tired of these people. Put that on record. What was the question about, James? <laughs> the the one that Buttigieg's answer came about on? No, or no, the, the one, one that I was trying to remember? Yeah, the one you were I, I can't remember. But I do have something else that I want to say about Biden and Kamala Harris. How dare yeah, you? Yeah, let's go there. <laughs> did, we, there. <laughs> did we talk about that on this recording no, yet? Not um, yet. Sid, I think you mentioned that you appreciated the way Harris came at Biden's record. Oh, right. um... Now I'm remembering. She's got serious issues. Ballard Ballard brought up, I think it was him, that the Obama administration deported more people. 
right? right? And so, like, Biden found himself a few times on some very, like, interesting terrain that he, like, was pinned in corners. And, like, whether he answered or not, we know where he stands. And this is one of those questions. The Obama administration being a deportation machine, being right. put all on record, I think that was really good last night. But um, to get to the Harris piece, when she confronted him on his right and there's one thing there's like the at first it starts off on this like maybe like overly uh, like superficial neoliberal identity politics kind of way in which she says she was personally offended by him praising his ability to work with segregationist senators back in the day but then it becomes a much more materialist critique right when she brings the substance to bear that he was working on stopping busing in Delaware in the 70s with those senators and that like she was a girl in the 70s being bused to an elementary school in California or in the 80s and so there he is in 2019 on the stage making the absolutely absurd argument that I guess Brown v. Board of Education should be decided by states state. at the state level yeah. and not the state. Department of Education. Or like yeah. individual which, school districts or some yeah. shit? I which was like, is okay. like, wait, isn't that literally, literally what Brown v. Board was like fighting back against in the first place and that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 gave right. teeth to? And then he's going to make a states' rights argument in the 70s is absurd on its face then as yeah. a Democrat, but oh, okay. But that you do that in 2019? I know. It's like so Biden. What? <laughs> like, there's no way that you can be the Democratic nominee. And that's like not me being a radical. That right. would be me if I was the most mainstream blue yeah. Democrat out here. Like, he disqualified himself on that piece alone last night, I feel right. like. And so Kamala Harris deserves. Like, in a prosecutorial way, she has that ability to just, like, set you up and, like, boom, boom, boom. Oh, she and she 100% then all, knew that's boom. how he was going to respond. Yeah, yeah. There's something yeah. about that that, like, I don't uh, I don't like her politics, per se. And right. I don't think her prosecutorial record is the greatest thing for her to be parading it's, on. I kind of want her to stay in the race for a bit, though. I think, yes. I think she's going to be good at holding other people accountable for stuff, and she's going to reveal a lot of... Um, shit. And, and, and rhetoric is a real thing, right? Like political rhetoric matters. And like to the extent that the democratic socialist progressive ideas are being embodied in not the most rhetorical vehicles, you know, in this mm-hmm. primary, I'm like annoyed. And I wish that I could like have Kamala Harris's whole rhetor, like embodied personality performance be also the vehicle for some of these other ideas because the way that she's able to play prosecutor and and because she's smart and she understands like analytic philosophy and she studied logic and she knows how to set up premises and whatnot. I want to see someone do that to Trump because this post-truth error, like post-truth is really not post-structure in like, you know what I mean? Like to get philosophical about all that shit, you can oh, be like we have as, already. <laughs> right. you, know I mean? you can be as post-post whatever you want to be. And at the end of the day, there still has, like there's a logic or something. Otherwise we really are just like in complete chaos here. And we all we'll know circle. because we, we feel, yes, we feel an ethical moral indignation right now about things that are happening in our society. Like very, pragmatic material politics and so i would love to see someone 
be able to like within that within that mode, right? Like just like javelin throw, stab, whatever this other like like this other political like fascist white nationalist like Kamala Harris is like, you know, she's well suited to do that. Because if there are going to be people out here who just like can see a lie and like not be critical at all about thinking like I think she could maybe expose like the Plato's cave effect on some of these Republicans. You know what I mean? Like they would have no, if they have no choice, but to watch her go up against Trump in a debate, it would just be really interesting. Like cross-examine the shit out of them. Because for the first time in four or five fucking years, Donald Trump would have somebody who is relentlessly forcing them to put an answer on record. Right. That is satisfying in a way that we've not seen any journalist ever do. Um, James, was it you? And so we should also say for anyone who's stuck around this long that we the the entire, <laughs> we got a lot more to talk about. So <laughs> the entire stay, stay tuned. The entire AAP uh, co-host crew group text was on fire the last two nights. I think we probably sent well over twelve hundred text messages. I um, yeah, like I was very very that. fun. But and when cool. and when we was, all die and they memorialize the Always Already podcast archive. archive. Yes. And listen, let me also say there's so much intertextuality. Um, for people who might listen or watch the Majority Report um, with Sam Cedar and that like that podcast, I was listening to them live stream the debate. So there was like four of them as talking heads on my screen. Plus the like five or six of us in our thread. That's amazing. So I like I don't know how much of the debate itself I caught, but like I was caught up in the kind of uh, you know the 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 hall of signifiers where it's like I'm (laughs) the hall of between between all of the comments, yes, all of the commentary that I got like in live time as the debate was unfolding. I don't know what was actually said and what was said to be said, but Um, it was fun. So I want to, uh, so I'm going to play a little de- debate moderator here to great. keep us on track. Um, I think we should talk about identity politics, right? Cause like we talked about a lot about that frequently in our group chat as we were uh, moving our way through the debate. So like Sid, maybe you could, maybe let's do, maybe I'll direct this question to you, Mr. Asar. Uh, uh, what, uh, what did you make of just like the, the function of identity politics? Cause no one, if I recall correctly, mi nombre, mi nombre es Beto. Mi nombre yes, es Beto. yes, oh, yes. And so we, can, we can start by dragging Beto all week <laughs> if we want, but like that is a good starting place. So yeah, I, I mean, I was just real. I mean, just the, so, so, so I might defend Beto a little bit from what I've heard heard is that being in El Paso and running campaigns there, apparently he's spoken in Spanish, at least at some of his campaign events in the past. It wasn't his first time. But still, that's uh, like, I mean, he's signaling. The person he didn't that- answer the question. It was like not even to the point of the right. question he was right. asked. And he was not even grammatically correct. He said, nuestro democracia, yeah, which yeah, okay. I'm all for scrambling gender, but like, yeah. I don't think he intended. To. <laughs> okay. I, I concede to you on that, but Cory Booker, like that, oh, God. I, like I don't even speak Spanish or, <laughs> but he just sounded ridiculous. <laughs> I have no idea what he was saying. <laughs> None. <laughs> like what, what was that? Ningun. Ni- no. That was sad. That's what that was. Yeah, yeah. He's with Rosario Dawson, though, right? Ain't that his, yes. like... Yes, that's his a thing. fiance, and I got thoughts about that. 
But uh, share. Maybe he, Do tell. Uh, or not. <laughs> we'll save, save it for our game later. So, okay. Um, the Spanish word is barbaro. We'll come back to this later. I don't want to be. Okay. I don't we'll want to be. I don't want to be rude. We can be messy later. It's okay. There are, yes. No, okay. There are talk on the street. There's talk on the street that Rosario Dawson is just a beard for this I, campaign. There, there is such talk. So I don't know if that's like you know, whatever that is, but I mean, from the from I think that was more identity politics stuff the first night. Though I might be wrong. So I'm I'm remembering like De Blasio, like oh, everything. Said, I have a black right, son. Right. Everything he said was like I. I'm I'm sure that's like spot on, but just the way and and then all the men talking about like reproductive rights and women, right? Who was Those it in the were, text that was like, "What's with all the men grandstanding for abortion?" <laughs> right, right. I the thing with De Blasio is like it's pandering in a way, but like it's also like eminently material in a way right. that I'll like give it a pass. Like he right. gets a pass. We, but he the beta stuff. said that though, like in his closing, yeah, whatever. Hey, he's been using his black family for years now, though, as like political rhetoric. So I'm sure they're yeah. used to it. Right. I mean, remember sure when he said something about CPT, and everyone was up in arms. When he said what? CPT. I yeah, that? I remember this. In New York. Oh, oh, like, oh yeah, uh, I thought you meant in the debates. I was like, what? Oh yeah, no, back in the day. <laughs> Yeah. But he was like, yeah, I was running late. I was running on CPT or some some shit like that. <laughs> yeah. Don't get too comfortable. I, you know, I just, I love that his son's name is Dante, which is both like a stereotypical black vernacular name, but then it's also right. like the most Italian, like yeah. Dante de Blasio. Like, right. I, I love it. I love, I hope that they snickered to themselves when they like settled upon calling their right. black Italian son Dante. So, so one of the identity politics thing that I think, <laughs> Um, I, I want to hear from all of you. And I think this is an observation we made in our group chat was about how, like, it seems like compared to 2016, at least now everyone was talking about working people and the working class. And we can talk about whether that's an empty signifier or in what ways. Yes. But Biden was the only one who said middle class. Right. Um, Kamala also said middle class, but But she said middle class working families as one kind of category right but it, mm. it i guess it sounded stark with him because he opened with that yeah it's like one of the first few things he said whereas everyone else was like oh yeah working people are suffering and we need to do something about that so i'm wondering what kind of um yeah like i mean is it just transparent that biden has a particular constituency and he's just catering to that um whereas or, other or maybe it's like clinging to the the promise of a middle class so that you know that those statistics that people uh, identify with a class that they're not in statistically yeah i mean i think there might also be a sort of archaeology of his political rhetoric right Mm -hmm. in that like he came of age at a time where the middle class was that empty signifier that you addressed in your calling out your hailing of subjectivities. Whereas now working class has become that, which like maybe this is a question of like, how has the political rhetorical culture shifted 
in the last 10 years, but definitely between, we'll say, 2016 and 2020, that people, that the Democratic Party has in some way, and maybe, you know, like, if you were to do some kind, like, what's that Google chart that you see how words have been used over time, right? Engram, um, and for the books, for use in books, yeah. Yes, right. So an engram, right. And I would love to see, like, within the Democratic Party, if we could look and see back in, like, political rhetoric of the 30s, mm. 20s and 30s and the Great Depression era, when they talked about the working class or, like, labor movement type rhetoric, and then when that transition to middle class, and if those things were the same or, like, I, I don't know, because, like, there's something in the historical development of American capitalism that, like, the middle class as a political like constituency right. like that is only a post-World War II sort of phenomenon, like to really be called out like that. We didn't have, we needed enough primitive whatever going on. And like, then we get to a certain level of expansion. Uh, all that to say, yeah. I think Biden's like, and this is not to just like say you're, because you're old, you're not able to have creative political thoughts. Cause I think the Swalwell comment about give up the torch. And then Biden is defended by Bernie as another septuagenarian. Right. And Bernie took it a lot more personal than Biden seemed to even never respond because Bernie right. is trying to say that it doesn't matter how old you are, like your political ideas can be like fresh and on the political horizon. Okay. Right. Biden so though have, is I very have. solidly not that. I there so I have some receipts for Bernie and their side <laughs> receipts for Bernie. Uh, so he used the phrase middle class in his closing statement yesterday, oh. and the and he didn't. He the only time he used like the language of worker or working class was this phrase, uh, the worker in the middle of our economy. So like he's not even immune from this dynamic. Mm. Right, right. Where are you searching the transcript that? I just I just searched for middle class. And so he he used the phrase. And then, as Emily said, Harris and Biden used the phrase. And I think the Blasio was probably maybe the strongest. In no, one, workers, no one working class and Tim Ryan. Right. And so and the phrase workers is appears much more frequently uh, in the first. Debate. The only person to use workers. And night two is Klobuchar, Ryan, Ryan. Yeah. So like those are the few Oh, this is interesting. But Yang used it. It was the only person to use it on night two. No. Never mind. I'm in the wrong thing. Sorry. Scratch that. I have a young podcast listener with me right now. Is Covey there? <laughs> Covey. Yeah, Covey. What did Covey oh. think of the debates? He was sound asleep. Smart. <laughs> Smarter so than good. all of us. <laughs> so good. Yeah, uh, I have Rachel and I have Elaine. I have both of them here with me. Hey. <laughs> Amazing. Ripley um, is sitting I, next to me. I'm, I'm in my office on campus. There are no cute things in my vicinity. No cute things. <laughs> oh, my God. This is way better content than ours. <laughs> I think um, feelings about presidential elections at this point and just debates. Kavi, who do you think who do you think has the best chance of starting a revolution? Who do you think? 
Who do you think? (laughs) I don't disagree. (laughs) You know what? No, that's perfect. The revolution is like not semiotic yet. So, I like it. Yes. Okay, I'm alone again. Oh, All right, so maybe we have like one more substantive topic before we start doing nonsense, and I have like at least three nonsense <laughs> to get you on this agenda here. Uh, I'm making. I feel like we're actually after dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't know. Or we we could we could save this for a later podcast, and that is uh, uh, Warren v. Bernie, Warren and Bernie. Uh, Let, let's get we, into Warren and Bernie. I think that's important. Yeah, well, I'm saying we could do it now, or like we've been podcasting for an hour and ten minutes already. Oh, yeah. and save it for a future to future. Do we want to tease it out? Because like I imagine that they're both going to stick around oh, in yeah. the Democratic that's, primary for a while, true. so we that's, can have. Maybe we this, can make some like maybe like preliminary, <laughs> right? Because we're going to have to have this conversation, I think, at some point, yeah. like writ large about the two of them and yes. what happens in this primary season. Okay, well, yeah, let's leave it there. So we, you, we want to tease it or no? Yeah, let's tease it, just briefly. Okay, so I think this originated when I sent a Facebook message to uh, my fellow co-host to be like, I know that Bernie is better, and I know that I should support Bernie, but I kind of want Warren. And I just have felt very conflicted. So it's all about working out my feelings and the fact that maybe I'm becoming uh, conservative and curmudgeonly in my old age. <laughs> But, but the idea that you're old. <laughs> but, but, but I do want to say that I am not the only person talking amongst us who has thrown five dollars at the Elizabeth Warren campaign. <laughs> yeah, my ho- my household has as well. No. Oh, so okay. There's multiple folks yeah. among us. I've also thrown some coin at Bernie's way. Yeah. Bye. So. Uh, but yeah, so what we're going to talk about Warren and Bernie at some point in the future. Um, okay, so total nonsense. Emily, a question that this isn't as nonsensical, <laughs> but more nonsense comes later. Emily asked a substantive question. Uh, what are the right rules for like this debate when you have 20 plus people? Oh, yeah, I did ask that question. That's a good question. <laughs> you want to go first in answering? I don't know. I, I mean, I wasn't thinking about this as structurally spectacular until we started recording this. And I was like, oh, sort of thinking through actually what I think the debate does and doesn't do. And now that we've done this whole bit where we're talking about it as this, you know, mode of entertainment full of empty signifiers, I'm like, God, I don't even know what rules would be better or what, like, if that's the purpose it serves and it serves that purpose for a reason, then like maybe, I don't know, maybe there's not, maybe it's either useless or maybe <laughs> there are, aren't good rules for it regardless. I, of, yeah. of I, That should not stop us from making suggestions. <laughs> in, okay. So inst- instead of like having like this debate thing, I would much rather just see them like in a survivor setup. Ooh. Like, so instead of being on the bachelorette they're on survivor or we could have them on both or something <laughs> i don't know <laughs> cross yeah. over can we i want them to do or, a or naked and drag afraid. race like naked and afraid oh, yeah. lip sync for I your lifestyle sashay away sashay away <laughs> um that would be good what about america's next top model 
<laughs> I'd rather see Did them make I'd rather, I'd rather Just see them oh, yes. making the clues. Oh. Right? With with Tim Gunn yelling at them. Yeah. A slash encouraging. That's what I'm saying. Put them on RuPaul's drag race. Like maybe maybe it's a, maybe it's a what about yeah. Top Chef? I want to see them lip sync to a Britney Spears Who song. would like, win <laughs> Top Chef of these people? Ooh. Apparently Harris oh, is like bo- supposedly a big foodie. Buttigieg, and I'm sorry. I'm gay, so, so I can say it. I can say it. He so would people, win on Top Chef? I'm telling you right now, Buttigieg's kitchen is immaculate, and I've never seen it, but I know it. <laughs> I know it is. I know it is. So speaking of Buttigieg. identity politics, yes, yes. Um, I, I'm I'm throwing down my own card. Um, I'm playing Cory Booker. You know, in my community, my community, in my community, you didn't know Cory Booker was from the black community until the other night. I, I said, Cory Booker, do you really live up the street from where people are getting killed? I, I don't know. know. I was like, come on, yeah, Cory. I, I didn't. I don't know. I. I, I, bet he, I bet he actually is because like that would be easily provable as a lie yeah he's got an address that he has like mailed delivered. very true do you think yang like has a, um the equivalent of a black card elite status on seamless because he just orders food all the time to the know, silicon yang, valley office yang is totally like a soylent <laughs> consumer oh god <laughs> yes that's amazing yeah <laughs> Oh yeah, man. I would totally oh. watch a Top Chef version of this debate. Yeah, or this contest rather. You know, can I just like one more thing, and you can edit this down however you want, John. But I guess this is all said and done. But to the identity politics piece, and I don't want to overanalyze rhetoric, but when um, Castro gave his final closing, and he said, "Yo soy Julian Castro, y estoy postulando para presidente," right, and then says in English. That I can say that was like some testimony or whatever, like, you know, it's like America's like multicultural, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I thought to myself, like, I hope he wasn't thinking that that was going to be the first time Spanish was spoken in the debate. Mm. But like, you know, like there was there's something in his rhetorical setup that like saying something in Spanish was meaningful for his closing statement. But it's like by the time that came around. Two white dudes had already spoken Spanish first, or a white oh. guy and a black guy, right? And it was just kind of like, by the time <laughs> that is the Freudian slip, I am interested excuse, in. Ooh, ooh, we're not gonna, yeah, we're not gonna open that one up. But like, by the time, right? But I, I just was like, hmm, I don't know if Castro was hoping for his own statement in Spanish right, to have right. some kind of like affective punch. It was kind of stolen from him already mm-hmm. um, by the way. Beto just kind of very sloppily, clumsily, like looked very deer in headlights. Like I had been rehearsing this all night. Let me say it on the first question I'm asked. Just get it out the way and on record. Um, and it was great because he was asked to follow up a few minutes after that by Ballard in Spanish and started to answer again, which was kind of like it was a standard kind of stock response. So I guess like it kind of is like an answer. But yeah, anyway. More go to the fun stuff, John. Okay. So <laughs> next, do we do we have any fashion criticism we want to offer? I think we've already we've dabbled. Um, I am, was on record as saying that uh, Bill De Blasio needs a haircut. Um, hit the back, <laughs> the back, way too long. Um, I'm on record as business Tim in Ryan. the front. 
Well, he is a business in the front, party in the back, kind of guy. So you know, Billy, Billy DB, Billy D. Uh, 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 and uh, I, Jay Inslee went with like the, there was a very like subtle print on his shirt to match his green tie. I liked that. Tim Ryan needs to, needs to go needs to go longer and interesting or much shorter with his hair. I think those Tim are some Ryan just needs to go. He just needs to go. And uh, Jose Diaz Ballard had incredible fucking glasses for night two. Mm-hmm. Um, I am obsessed with Tulsi's gray streak. I want to yeah. wear her hair. I, she's like gray, you know, from X Men. Yes. Oh, that's she's something. Got good something. hair too, like nice, thick. Like it's it's thick. It's healthy. Yeah. It's like it's... that Indian blood, man. <laughs> <laughs> It's healthy like capitalism could be. <laughs> that was a joke. We haven't any other thoughts about Gabbard that we want to share. I don't think we've mentioned her at all. I So I was having this argument with a friend of the podcast, Osha, yesterday. Where Do we think that her sort of, her kind of, I was in the military, therefore I have a good critique of the, of the complex was sort of faint feigning or whether there was something kind of substantive there. Like, what do we make of that? But she's not actually like anti intervention, not that like anti military. Right. But she's like, we got to bring people home. We have to reduce our military presence. We have to blah, blah, blah. I don't know. That's like the only issue that makes her interesting. Like that's the only, Mm -hmm. that's the only issue of hers that makes her interesting in a progressive Other than that, I don't, all I felt about that is that it's a damn shame that like, it still seems to be the case that in 2019, the only way to critique militarism is to like genuflect at its altar first, or to like have to have literally fought in combat before you're allowed, like Buttigieg having to like, like cite his Afghan combat experience in order to like bolster his refer. Yes. Right. Against guns. It's just like, if that's the way we still got to thread these needles, then I get it. But I'm tired of that. And like, that's uncreative. Do you think I don't need that in do, the imaginary anymore. Do you think that's an issue of like demand that it like comes from, this is just purely hypothetical, but that like the, that that's the reason it has to be set up because that's what people, that's what resonates with people or that it's just like their last ditch attempt at kind of legitimating themselves as some, someone who's deserving of, of authority. I think there's a false like notion of where the center lies and mm. that the center is somehow like needing to think strong <laughs> defense, which is also like, I don't know if Chuck Todd was one of the fun topics, but his let's, framing. Yes. Let's go there. Okay. And what were we going to call this segment? Oh, Chuck. Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> like, and Chuck. here's like the pivot. When Chuck Todd wants to ask a question about threats to the United States, the way he frames it is what is the greatest enemy to the United States? Like that framing just imply, like, why do we have to why? set this up as if it's a Cold War scenario? Right. Like, who is the greatest, threat. like, what, military threat? Like, another political state entity? Like, what is, what is, 
that. And like, I think to whatever extent there are going to be moderators like Chuck Todd, who their hypotheticals are always rooted around this, like, I don't know, this socially conservative, or like fiscally conservative, socially moderate person that they right, think right. is the center. Then there are going to be people like Tulsi Gabbard who emerged to speak to that imaginary center. Right. I, I, the whole thing, like Chuck Todd's questions were just absurd that he spoke like the third or fourth most person like most words even though he was only there for like the second half of the first night's debate like that's absurd to me but he i was saying in our group chat is a metonym i think for the like the end like that we are in a post-political situation but he doesn't know that yet or like Mm. he does not compute and so he's He's still running us on a system of like it's the good old days of American politics where you can just like the only other pivot point is like what would a centrist leaning Republican small government person think about that? And it's like there are so many other constituencies that you could be invoking in the audience. Right. Like it by the manner of which you frame your question, you could call them out. What's the word for hailing? That's like the technical term. I can interpolation. Thank you. Right. Like Chuck Todd interpolates a Fox news viewer all the time. Mm. And so like the political imaginary for him is so small and bounded already. He's asking questions that are absurd. The only one who seemed to push back at that, I think was Bernie last night or was it Kamala or like maybe both of them, but someone pointed out, was like that whole question. Right. Just like needs to not be asked the way you're asking. Bernie like, said, "I reject the premise." Right? Is is that the question he said? Yeah, I, reject I the think he said something like that. I think maybe it was around like the one, like what's the one re- relationship you'll repair? Oh no, no, he said, "I reject the premise on what's the one, what's the first thing you do in office." Yes, there was another question that got rejected. I think or like reframed, and I want to think it was a woman who did that work. I feel like it was Kamala, but I can't remember now exactly. But the whole time I was sitting here, I was like, if I was on this stage, I would just be flipping the logic of his questions on their head. No, it was someone who said, uh, why don't you ask this? Why don't you ask this question when Republicans like do their giant tax cut? No one asked them how they fund it. That someone refuted that back last night. Mm. I missed that. Oh, I don't have the transcript in front of me, but there was a question about, yeah, Chuck Todd says something to the effect of how are Democrats who make these claims about free health care, Medicare for all or whatnot, how are they going to pay for this? Or don't they have a responsibility to like show how they're going to pay for it? And someone who's not even a Medicare for all, per- it was Kamala Harris. Yes, because this is what struck me about it, that I was like, oh, she's not even the one that I would expect to feel the most like, you know, need to defend that. And yet she interjected by saying no one asked the Republicans where oh, they're going to fund it. their tax cuts. Was it Kamala Harris? Yeah. She said, well, okay. let me tell you something. I hear that question, but where was that question when the Republicans and Donald Trump passed a tax bill that benefits the top 1% and the biggest corporations in this country? Uh, that was a yeah. Savannah Guthrie question, not a Chuck Todd question. Oh, let me be fair then, because I, I don't like Chucky Boy, so I there's, up There's him. plenty to uh, <laughs> drag Chuck for. <laughs> But that, okay, that, like, that, I appreciated her. Not just Chuck's. No. (laughs) I appreciated, like, there was very... especially Chuck's. There could have been a lot more, like, punching at the frame of the question as its own kind of political, um, like, demonstration for the listener at home, right? Like, just to, to, to break open the small boundary 
that we think is the terrain of political discourse and like possibility. Like, I don't know whatever that, like, I don't know what can come of this, but there is something about the imaginary that could be provoked. The exact language of that question is interesting though. It's, she asks, um, there's a lot of talk in this primary about new government benefits, such as student loan cancellation, free college, healthcare, and more. Do you think that Democrats have a responsibility to explain how they will pay for every proposal they make along those lines? That it's just, I, why frame it like that? Responsibility is doing a lot of work. Right. What does that even mean? I, I just, yeah, I, I, I want to see what, like if those same candidates were on a debate, but like other people like us had a chance to formulate the questions and that we were not just going to do it to try to like shut down politics. Right. But like (laughs) that we were going to actually ask questions like, and play along We'll play along. Yes, let's play along and help, you know, the electorate out here. I mean, like you could frame questions in a way that really do build a kind of collective consciousness around certain constituencies if you want to in this process. Mm -hmm. I think Ballart injecting that anger on the migrant crisis issue, like is is his way of trying to see his own role in the political process. Mm -hmm. But you're in this already. You're not objectively moderating right. right you are literally creating the, the the discourse that is going to determine the presidency and there's such a power in that and to have vacuous people like chuck todd in those kinds of positions are indictments i think on like whatever the basic framing of a 20th century style a b democrat republican flavor political system it's like broken <laughs> it is so broken it's so, so, so broken. Been uh, broken. It's been so broken. On the theme of brokenness, <laughs> should we should we play our final? So Sid had to run. He says goodbye, listeners. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye to Emily and James. Bye, um, he did. Bye. He did crucially give us his answers to our final question. So <laughs> that's so I, should, should we go there? Is there anything else we want to say about the debates? Oh, I'm so... No. <laughs> well, we're making Chuck Todd a metonym, right? So this is like the last attempt at a segue. Chuck Todd is a metonym for what I think is wrong about 20th century, liberal democratic, Western American, blah, 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 blah. And to that end, Chuck is going to also become now another uh, evocative phrase for us. Oh, no. Uh... How many more of these debates are there going to be? I don't Probably know. Probably a, a lot. There we have a month until the next one. I okay. don't we think. Are... Let's put it this way. I do not think we will be doing this every time. No, <laughs> not every time. But uh, we will have a we will have a long like. It'll help when uh, if if slash when Bernie and Prof Liz are which is my new affectionate nickname for <laughs> Liz Warren. Prof Liz, yeah. Uh, uh, when they are in the same debate, that will help. Yeah, or if one of them drops at some point, then we can oh, yeah. reflect on that. Yeah. I, but, uh, it's a big hypothetical, but big hypothetical. Yeah. one of those two things, we'll figure it out. Oh, figure it out. It's time for a nap. Time for, time for a nap. <laughs> All right. It's after Probably after for the listeners too, at this point, hopefully they missed my mayor Pete admission. They, <laughs> I mean, they did it. <laughs> I hope that they appreciate now how we've sussed out the American political landscape. <laughs> 19 for them. Uh, 
there's something for them to chew on and think about over the next 18 months of this unfolding oh process. Why did us. you say it like that? That sounds so long. However long it is, however the hell long it is, is Ugh. it 18 months or so? In a year from now, in a year from now, we're still going to be months away from voting. Uh, say it in weeks, like how people say babies ages. Oh my. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, that was a that was it's a it's a glide path to the next debate, everybody, oh nice. and the next episode. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, thank thank you for listening, listeners. Have an always already day. Bye bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Always Ready Podcast, which is brought to you by Rachel Brown, B. Lee Altman, James Pataline Jr., Emily Crandall, Sidisar, and John McMahon. Visit our website at alwaysreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us, text you'd like us to discuss, and we do want your advice, questions for us to answer, and uh, dreams for us to analyze to alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to our friend Bad Infinity for their track Desiring Machines, which you heard at the beginning of the episode. You can check them out on SoundCloud. Thank you, as always, to B, who you're listening to right now. You can follow us on Twitter at alwaysreadyon. You can like our Facebook page. You can leave us a review on your podcast listening mechanism of your choice. And you can support us at patreon.com slash alwaysreadypodcast. Till next time, have an always already day.